When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Calm Versations with the Voice of Reason. I am your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's Calm Versant, if you can call him that, because he speaks a mile a minute, thinks twice as fast, I'm sure, and packs quite a punch as he's doing so, is Wilfred Riley, who is an author and a professor of political science out there in Appalachia. Two of his works are hate crime hoax and taboo, 10 facts you can't talk about. I have read about half of hate crime hoax and I kind of found it, well, really stimulating and informative, but kind of entertaining. He's got this really interesting way of taking facts and animating them with his animated style. So in this conversation, we kind of just talk about politics and political science, and we examine certain forms of power. And I keep on asking him about these different ideas that seem to have a life of their own in our society, such as, I guess, white privilege and certain things about the ways in which COVID is being spoken about and thought about and reacted to. Great conversation. You're going to love it. I'm going to get out of the way. Here is Wilfred Riley. Why political science? First of all, I find political science to be fascinating. I mean, the study of power on the one hand, why governments do what they do and how they do what they do is is an interesting idea. I mean, how does genie coefficient affect your country's likelihood of going to war? I mean, those are some of the bigger human questions, right? If they're those of physics, all in a different direction. I also found the sociological aspect of it interesting. Some of my work, although I certainly don't consider myself a sociologist, is kind of on the borderline there. So I got into the methods portion of what I do, actually, with my dissertation or a little before, by looking at a lot of these public claims that are very widely made, like the claim of unique white privilege, and seeing if they are real, if they stand up to modern quantitative methods, um, log linear regression or something like that, logit, linear Uh, time series if you're looking at at an era in U.S. time. And I find they often don't. I mean, my dissertation looked at what's called the hacker question, where in 1992, the well-respected Queens University political scientist, Andrew Hacker, nice guy, like he didn't didn't make a mistake during his research, but asked a group of people, a group of white guys in Queens in the 90s, but how much they'd have to be paid to become black, if this were possible, there's a, there's about a paragraph long description of the methods and so on. But the average answer was $50 million. And this, along with uh, Peggy McIntosh's essay, is kind of the start of the idea of white privilege. The claim is that whiteness has such value in this racist, prejudiced, post-colonial, sexist, heteronormative et al. society that you'd have to pay whites tens of millions of dollars to become black. For my graduate dissertation, which became my very short first book, Um, I looked at the one obvious exception of this well-run experiment, which is that he didn't ask any black guys how much they'd have to be paid to be white. (laughs) So I expanded this up to a modern survey size, two or 3,000 people, and I asked a group of people of all backgrounds, um, 
if this were possible, and I allowed an opt-out, which he didn't, but if this were possible, how much would you have to be paid to change, one, your race, but also to your sex, your orientation, your faith tradition? And what I found is that there's no support for the white privilege idea at all, at least using this methodology. Uh, whites do demand a bunch of money, but blacks demand more. Uh, as I recall, we were at about 80 million, although you have to adjust for inflation. As much as that sounds like a cocktail party joke, it's really true. But, I mean, the most racist group was old Asian men. And then you get into questions about, is this a measure of racism at all, personal pride? I mean, you'd have to do an out-group dislike measure as well. So yeah. I, I didn't really find any support for it all. Like, the experiment was really well done, but he just left out the non-white people. Yeah. Uh, and I also found that people are much more attached to other things than to race, which many people... A lot of males, about 10, 20 percent of all cohorts, offered to give up their race for just a flat million dollars, um, if anything. But no one was willing to change, for example, their sexual orientation. And some women described in very graphic terms why they wouldn't. Um, they didn't want to go down on other women at length for the rest of their life, basically. But I mean, uh, people similarly with their sex, many men did not want to become women, physically smaller, so on. Many women did not want to become men. Some some noted some, I believe, accurate research pointing out that women have a two or three IQ point advantage. They thought women were better lovers and so on. And on. But what I found is that the, all of this and this is a good synopsis of a lot of the research I've conducted um, in terms of academic pieces or conference pieces, but also major public intellectual writing. Life is complicated. Um, you did find that there were some racist whites, but you also found that there were at least as many racist minorities. And you found that you probably weren't measuring racism in the first place. Um, you also, I mean, or at least I discovered that people were much more attached to other things than they were to race. So that, that was one of the first experiments of this kind that I did. I'm interested in doing another one with an ordered scale of privilege and in between I've written the books and so on. But essentially I got a degree in the field. Um, I thought that the focus on power and the ability to quantitatively test some of the more qualitative stuff that comes out of, for example, sociology was pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. And also, I mean, you, you again, you kind of get hired where you get hired. There, there are only so many tenured professors. So I figured I would be in political science and methods and I would go where someone previously in that role had died or retired, which turned out to be the case. Speaking, so of, power, speaking of power, what makes the idea of privilege as it's being used for the past... Uh, I don't know how long, but it came to widespread public consciousness probably four or five years ago. Why is that so pernicious? What is the power of that idea in your mind? Well, I think that the idea, so there's a very old proverb, I believe Lithuanian, um, which says that if you worry about your soul, you're a good man. I.e., if you were actually just a wolf in a suit or, um, you know, I suppose a baron in steel armor back in the day, the same predecessor version of the same thing, you wouldn't spend much time thinking about whether you were good or how your, your peasants or your employees perceived you. Mm -hmm. um, along the same lines, the USA has progressed, although I'm not sure that this is entirely a positive, to the point where we're a very introspective, guilty society where people worry about a great deal about the things not just they, but their ancestors have done in the past. Mm -hmm. When I talk to friends who are Chinese or Russian or essentially Aztec nobles from central Mexico, things like this, they view us as idiots uh, because of this sort of soft, weak, endlessly mewling about things that we can't change at all. But within this context of the contemporary moralizing USA, where most of the moralizing is from the left, where guilt has a certain element of power to it, the idea that you are born with certain inherent advantages is something that can really devastate people if it's brought up during a debate or by a lover or whatnot. Hmm. And 
essentially there's a power claim against the idea of privilege. The power claim against the idea of privilege is that because you have this this pre-existing benefit, you owe me something. It would be just as easy to be a complete son of a bitch like the stereotypical Russian or Aztec nobleman we're describing and say, yes, I have power over you because you lost to me. So go work, which is actually probably more than anything else. My reaction, I think a certain element of cruel arrogance is necessary to be happy in life. Hmm. But at any rate, um, today in society, this is not how it is treated. So people are attempting to demonstrate that their their opponents, their foe men have privilege and they don't, basically. The, the problem with the white privilege idea, I think, is that it's the phrase that comes to mind talking to someone else who knows what a computer is, is childishly univariate. So, hmm. I mean, what, what you're saying is that, you know, on a one to 100 metric or something like that, being white would give you an advantage of five points if that were the only thing that mattered. But it's not. There are dozens of variables that predict how privileged you are likely to be. I mean, the obvious one is social class. I don't think anyone would disagree that the old wars and conflicts between the great races and between white nationalities, Irish and Italian, that saw no commonality with one another until about 50 years ago. But I mean, no one would deny that those conflicts produce some genuinely disenfranchised groups, urban blacks, Appalachians, so on. But that's a class issue. There are also many rich black and white people. So you have class, you have sex. I mean, on average, the impact of sex in a job application process, if you're talking trading floors, job sites, is greater than the impact of race. There's sexual orientation, which is the one thing no one would change in my little study. I mean, obviously, it's hard to think of a group that would take more abuse than, say, black gay men, you know, and mostly from in community and just so on down the line. I mean, there's IQ, there's physical fitness, there's attractiveness, there's urban, rural, so on. So it, it, the idea that white people have an inherent set of advantages no non-white people do is ridiculous. I mean, I'm a tenured professor at a fairly major university. I've written a couple of best-selling books. Like, for me to criticize a homeless white guy, which I've literally seen people do, there are articles about this, like explaining privilege to a broke white person, would be a ridiculous and, in fact, cruel thing to do. But it's something you see pretty commonly. Hmm. But that's because you aren't politically black, mm. to quote. Hannah, Hannah Nicole Jones. <laughs> Word bonds, <What>? son. <laughs> With regards to the class issue, then, uh, are you, how does that resolve for you, or do you see it ever resolving? Is that a perennial human state uh, condition of humanity, or does it need to be constantly investigated, upset, and overturned, or? How do we approach that as the if we just say that that's the problem that we want to address? Well, I think as a fairly, quote unquote, trad guy who's coming from kind of that Tom Sowell quantitative tradition, I don't think that we need to panic every time something is bad. Um, I don't think that the natural state of mankind is utopia. So this is this is a characteristic of fringe movements in general, whether you whether you think about the alt right who really read into make America great again and America first and so on a bit more than they should. And imagine this gilded age back in the 40s or 50s where there were no problems until you point out that half the toilets then were still outside. But I mean, whether you're talking about that or you're talking about the equivalent on the left where people dream of the communist utopian golden era in the future, the fringe movements in general think that. Average everyday struggle is unnatural and bizarre. 
And what is natural is the utopia that they can guide you to. But the problem is that every fringe movement from communism to Nazism has failed disastrously, Islamic theocracy, when it's been placed in a position of real power. Because, in fact, ordinary everyday struggle is the human reality. Utopia literally means no place. So, you know, do I think class is a problem? Not really. I think some people are smarter and more competitive than others. So in any society, within any one generation, you'll have rich people and poor people. Mm -hmm. Because there are so many other factors like luck and single motherhood that contribute to poverty, I certainly favor things like free public schools that assist those that find themselves in a position of poverty. But I don't think the existence of the poor is in particular something to be worried about. I was poor and now I'm not. And that's that's very, very common. I mean, many people in a field like sales cycle between poverty, the stable middle class and wealth and a single life. Uh, Similarly, the simple existence of racism, I don't think is something that can ever really be done away with. Racism is simply tribal hostility transplanted to the next level. I mean, so now you live in a large enough society, the USA or Brazil, that the, the old tribal groups have consolidated themselves. So the Lithuanians, Italians, Irishmen, and so on are all white now, and the mm-hmm. Ghanaians, Nigerians, Jamaicans, and so on are black, and you have Asians. But the level of the level of competition with those that are slightly less than one standard deviation away from you in color or regional terms, it's, it's the same intensity in most societies. Again, that's an actual measurable fact that's been analyzed in political science. So I don't, I don't think that's bad. I mean, of course, it's a vice, like adultery or something as a human problem that's always existed. But you can regulate it, you can make it against the law. But to say, we are going to eradicate racism, or we are going to eradicate poverty, uh, is is very likely to be the start of a campaign that's doomed to failure. You can certainly minimize those things, of course. But relative wealth and poverty, income inequality, tribalism, those things will always exist among humans. Mm-hmm. You said that fringe ideologies such as communism and Nazism, when they come to power, they fail disastrously. What is an ideology that comes to power and doesn't fail disastrously? Um, Boring. I mean, democratic capitalism doesn't fail disastrously. Democratic socialism doesn't fail disastrously. Um, Feudalism. So there's there's more than one ideology that doesn't make it fringe, or there's something in that that's more complex or less univariate, if that's a logical phrase. Yeah, I I think that a simple a simple way to look at this might be to envision as you know a poli sci two eleven class does all of the ideologies on a spectrum from you know absolute monarchy to anarchy or whatnot. What you would probably find is that the key question that is raised at each point along that spectrum is what each person is expected to contribute to society or how much of a leadership role each person has in society. A very, very simplistic way to conceive of this would just be taxes, right? So, I mean, the question of most civilized societies, once you get past, you know, throwing old people into the bushes for the wolves or the hyenas or whatever, this this wasn't just a European tradition. But, I mean, once you get past that, the question to some extent is how much money or goods, successful people are morally bound to give to society to support those that are temporarily less successful. That is the key question of modern human societies. Going back to the English and Viking debate about how much to give the almsmen. You know, so I think that a democratic socialist society, to some extent, is just a society that has a higher rate of tax on private industry that then goes to public good works than a democratic capitalist society. I prefer democratic capitalism, but you're talking about pretty narrow things there. Like here in the USA, we have more freedom, but less quality public health care they do in Sweden. 
A society can survive those kind of disputes. What I think of as fringe ideas are simply ideas toward the two ends of the political spectrum. I mean, I think that a totalitarian tyranny where one guy makes all the decisions. I mean, you, North Korea, despite advantages like a high population IQ and very arable land, is probably the worst country in the world. And a large amount of that is because one guy has to be the bellwether decision maker, right? I mean, like one guy has to determine what the country is doing. You used to see this all the time with the crazy mercantilist philosophies that were pursued by kings. If one person is making all the decisions, they're very likely to be wrong. Um, on the other hand, so that, that's an example of an extreme ideology, dictatorship, totalitarianism. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, uh, communism has some of that problem. But yeah, I mean, that, that's why communism doesn't work. There's no need for another exegesis here. But on the other extreme, I think, you know, anarch, truly anarchic societies, truly libertarian societies, where everyone is a king and no one is expected to contribute to the fisc, those aren't going to work either. I mean, if you actually talk with a libertarian, and this isn't, I'm not writing a book chapter here, so I'm sure this is a perfectly coherent, it's some good points there. But I mean, like, if you talk to a libertarian and ask questions like, well, what's your border policy? Okay, well, what happens when thousands of poor people from the other country that borders us come in? There's, there's no answer. If you say every man a king will ever give everyone the right to homestead these farms and you have to follow these rules, and you have a border, say ours with Mexico or the Dominicans with Haiti, what do you do in the absence of a government? There's no answer there. And this, to me, thus becomes another fringe philosophy that's likely to be predictive of failure. All failed philosophies tend to be very utopian. So the idea of the libertarian, to some extent, is that the other people just aren't going to come over because we'll ask them not to. Um, the idea of the communist is that everyone will work equally hard for no money uh, versus one another and versus what they would have done for money. Hmm. And we find that this just isn't true. You know, the, the idea behind totalitarianism, Napoleonic nonsense, for example, is great man theory. Of course, this one man can make decisions on par with those of an economic system. Anytime you find Islamic theocracy, I mean, the idea is that God is involved in the governance of this country run by those following his chosen religion. But God's probably not real. So all of these philosophies that are based on these unlikely utopian assumptions are not going to pan out. A good question for it, this is my, my last sentence here because I've gone on for a bit. But a good question is, re any piece of governing philosophy, the Green New Deal comes to mind. Uh, some of the healthcare packages I see being floated come to mind. The a good question is just: Are the assumptions behind this logical or utopian? Um, yeah, that's that's logical meaning practical. Or yeah, practical, yeah, practical, pragmatic, um, likely to be true. I think to some extent. Hmm. So, I mean, when you look at a lot of the climate change, now, again, I, I've run into this with COVID, where if you're on sort of that quantitative center right, you're at all heterodox, people will accuse you of just denying all sorts of things um, up to the Holocaust. Just, you know, you're, you're, you don't believe in COVID, you don't believe in climate change. No, obviously, climate change is a real issue that I take fairly seriously, although I, I will note seawall technology has improved dramatically. Um, there are companies you can invest in. I don't think that we are just going to watch the water rise and stand there looking at it until we drown. But I mean, in terms of utopian philosophy and assumptions, though, when we look at the climate change space, one of the things that Green New Deal style folks on the left seem to be assuming is that China, Russia, Brazil, India, the great POC world powers, Arabia, that are now on par with our country in terms of GDP per capita, at least some regions of those states, GDP overall for China, 
they are going to obey the policies that we lay down or they're going to follow similar rules. Mm-hmm. That's just bullshit. No, they're not. I mean, and it's even if they were to, there's already enough ambient greenhouse in the all the gases combined in the atmosphere that we would see most of the warming we're worried about up to 2.8 degrees over the next 100 years or whatever, even yeah. if everyone stopped doing almost everything, even if all emissions stabilized at today's levels. So unless you're willing to take those points on and say there's going to have to be some adaptation, what do you support? You, what you're saying is just utopian nonsense. I mean, there's just a caveat in the bill that says, and we will encourage China to follow along with the text of this statute. And the response to that is, well, but they're not going to. So you're just, you're just wasting everyone's time. Hmm. You're passing a meaningless, freedom-depriving law that our enemies are not going to adhere to. Mm-hmm. So the proper way... To, well, so, but you're not advocating giving up on the project of forestalling imminent... I don't know, economic or environmental disaster, right? What was the proper way to to move in that direction? Well, I think that, I mean, I I recently read uh, Lomborg's book, Lomborg's, uh, Bjorn Lomborg's, and a couple of the other books. I mean, I know Michael Schnellenberger personally, the guy who wrote Apocalypse Never. I've also read, as a scientist, I mean, I've read the responses from the the full-on scientific community. There's a new one that just came out, uh, Unsettled by Conan, that kind of discusses both sides of this debate. But I mean, my strong impression from reading the best crits and then their responses from sane scientists read the climate change debate is that a lot of this is baked in by this point. And when I've talked to people like Mike behind closed doors, although he is heterodox on this, I mean, they, they very definitely have said this, that to some extent, everybody knows that the progression toward a three degrees warmer planet is going to happen based on what we've been doing since the 60s. The real question is whether we'll get to, say, five degrees if we keep increasing emissions. Is there going to be a major difference between three degrees and 5.5 degrees? My own reading of the models, the pretty decent modelers, we have no idea. They're all over the place. So, I mean, I think that when you talk about the basic idea of some warming being baked in, or the basic idea, which is Kunin's point and unsettled, that the models really are not that predictive. They're pretty bad. You're taking a very advanced weather forecast and you're trying to project that 100 years into the future. Uh, Two points there. Or um, Lomborg's point that there's going to have to be some adaptation here because even a three degree rise will have most of the effect on sea level that we're worried about. What I actually think we're looking at with climate change is a debate between the adults about what we're going to do. I mean, are you adapt to it rather than to stop it from happening? Yeah, I mean, or the, saying that 12 years from now, it's uh, our planet's over or something like that. Well, that that's just absurd nonsense. My what the actual and I, I assume you have a pretty on point audience. So, I mean, I, there'll probably be corrections in the comments or something about this. But my understanding of the 12 years point is that that is the point by which we could never return the Earth to the starting preset temperature that we were going to get before the three degree rise. It's something like that. We would not be able to stop a cycle of climactic change from beginning by the end of this 12-year period. However, that cycle of climactic change could increase the temperature of the world by 3 degrees, 5 degrees, 2.8 degrees at all. Um, And again, there are multiple different models that look at things like the albedo of the Earth that try to break all this down, try to project that. And my guess would be that they're going to be about as accurate as the COVID models. 
where if you look at the best one from the tech sector, Pueo, I mean, admittedly, that was a journal published with 10 million people are going to die in America. Uh, Neil Ferguson, this was journal published in top tier, 2.5 million, I believe, two at least, were going to die in America. This is last year up till September. You had other people, many on the right, saying maybe 5,000, 10,000. This, this was all bullshit. Hmm. Um, it turned out that as the disease began, we got to look at variables like number of ICU bids that had been impossible to put into a lot of the earlier models. And we were able to come to much more logical, more valid conclusions. But the climate change models, in my professional, frankly, opinion, are like the COVID models before COVID really began. Do you know how the human body is going to react to a novel virus? How hard are doctors going to work? I mean, so on down the line. Mm-hmm. Are there going to be differences between national health care and individual corporate managed health care states, i.e. the USA and Britain? It turns out there's some evidence on either side. But I think that the reality, again, the reality of the climate change debate should be what can we actually do? The people that argue that there is no climate change, I'll target the right here for a second. That's not really a part of the debate. That's like the equivalent of saying that if if we're debating the age of the world, saying that the age of the world is 6,000 years and that dinosaur bones were placed there by God to test our faith. It's just nonsense. Of course, Mm -hmm. the planet's warming. The question is what the human role is, how we can adapt to it, so on down the line. I personally just can't imagine that a four degree surge in temperatures is going to mean much of anything for mankind. Especially since most of the world's population is in the northern hemisphere. I mean, Europe, North Asia, Japan, Russia. I mean, will there be mass devastation? Possibly. I think that adaptation of the seawalls, move inland, so on variety over the course of 125 years, again, recall, is much more likely. But we'll see. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that uh, certain debates won't tank America, like certain hardcore ideologies would bring America down or just our our nation state down. Um, What's something that you see as possibly teetering the American project? Um, Or or adversely, do you see a lot of people projecting things that don't really exist that you could dispel? About yeah, I mean, I think, and again, I'm, I'm from the center, right? I'm from a business background, so I find myself more often targeting the left on this. But yeah, I think there are, and this is this is the topic of one of my books, Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About, available anyway. But I mean, this this is the focus of one of my books, The these ideologies that are potentially very dangerous, that are currently concentrated on the left, some on the very hard right, but mostly on the left, and that are just sort of non-factual. So I mean, I think that there, there's a great deal of discussion right now about quote-unquote CRT, And I'm not sure that that's the name I would use for kind of the critical school and leftist thought in general. Mm -hmm. But all of that, I mean, Marxist pedagogy, uh, the 1619 Project version of history, the Black Lives Matter version of criminal justice, all of that, if taken seriously, is extremely dangerous for the USA. I mean, the the three part framework here is essentially if you read Richard Delgado on critical theory, for example, Mm -hmm. all systems in the USA were intentionally set up to be racist. Mm -hmm. Um, They were set up to oppress people of color generally, sometimes poor whites if someone's making a Marxist analysis, sometimes women, but generally people of color. Um, You can tell that this intentional oppression is baked into the system by looking at disparities in performance between groups. This is pretty much Ibram Kendi as well as Delgado. So the argument is that if you see something like a disparity in arrest rates, 
if you see something like a disparity in SAT test scores, that is ipso facto evidence of bigotry because the only other explanation for it would be what Kendi calls deep set inferiority, by which he means, I think, probably genetic. And the third element of this would be equity. So the solution to the, uh, the reality of disparities which must indicate racism is that some sort of state department or at least enterprise agencies like college admissions offices should make sure that the percentages of people across all races and sexes and so on are equalized in every field. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, obviously, actually adopting this philosophy, assuming that every core process of the USA element of American life is racist that Brown v. Board of Education was an act of white supremacy. And responding to this by guaranteeing that there are, say, 18% Hispanics across every area of praxis in the country, I mean, that would dramatically reshape the entire USA. And it's worth noting that the essential claim here is just bullshit. Once again, it's a numerically illiterate claim. So the, the two explanations for performance differences aren't genetic inferiority and racism. That's an old bad idea that Thomas Sowell dispelled in a couple of books, uh, Civil Rights, Rhetoric or Reality, and so on, 40 years ago, and that other people from William Julius Wilson on the left to Dinesh D'Souza back when he's writing more seriously on the right have devoted whole chapters to. Um, I mean, if you're looking at something like income, as re blacks versus whites, yeah. You see a disparity. This is one of the major notes I make at the start of a couple of different papers, because it's, it's such a significant, obvious point. You see a disparity of 44000 for a black household to 65000 for a white household. And this is almost invariably, if you read books like Cast, attributed to racism. The problem, though, is that groups as large as blacks and whites that vary in terms of things as important or at least as noticeable as race also vary in terms of dozens of other characteristics. So, I mean, the the most obvious and least controversial of these, which I've said probably in a dozen lectures already, is that the most common age for a black man is 27. For a white guy, it's 58. So, I mean, obviously, the median average is a bit different. But during a 30-year additional window of life, you're going to accumulate some money, barring total failure. Uh, If you adjust for that, if you adjust for region, more black people live in the South where wages are lower for everyone. If you adjust for any test score... We are making up ground, but I mean, the, the current black average on the SAT is about 950 is versus 1100 for whites. Minimum for whites I've seen past 10 years is 1050. So you, again, you can't just ignore a 100 point gap. And some basics like family structure. I mean, so the black quote unquote illegitimacy rate out of wedlock birth rate is 72%. So on average, we have close to one less person in our household. When you adjust for these things, hmm. the gap closes. In fact, among professional women, it reverses. You find the same thing, by the way, if you look at male-female pay gaps, what's often called the gender pay gap. The, the stereotype there is that I suppose women are getting paid, what was it alleged to be this year, 59 72, cents? 72. 72? Okay. 72 cents, yeah, on the dollar. Okay, 50, 59, I think, is for like all men and all women. 72 oh. is for all working men and working women. But I mean, it, when you adjust for these basic things, like are the women working? Uh, in what job? There aren't a lot of female garbage men or, you know, Air Force pilots or a number of other things. Sexism may play some small role there, but those differences exist. When you, How many hours are people working? How many years do they choose to work? How many childcare months do they take off? When you adjust for these differences, the actual gap that I do think is attributable to sexism is about 3.1% last I saw. Uh, in fact, the gap with blacks and whites is essentially nothing. Uh, again, really? I would say sexism. 
Yeah, if you adjust for uh, age, region, yeah. aptitude test scores, family structure, and I think the other thing June O'Neill, the economist, would note is number of years worked, where I do think racism might play some role, but it's, you have to unpack each of these variables at once. Yeah, there's, there's no gap at all. Hmm. And again, to me, both the CRT uh, critical movement and the extreme opposite flip, the HBD guys like Bo Weingard that would say genetics might play some role here. Both of these are kind of just add-ons to the standard social science breakdown from that kind of quantitative center right that I just gave. So, I mean, what you're saying, no one disputes that if you adjust for you know age, region, test scores, you get eight, blacks, whites and Asians make about the same amount of money. Uh, and most most other gaps close as well. I mean, crime rate. This is something that's often lobbed at the black community from the right. There's a much higher crime rate. Again, if the average black guy is 30 years, the modal black guy is 30 years younger than the modal white guy, that's going to have a dramatic influence on this. I mean, I would expect that except for murder, which is a gang related problem in the USA right now, most other major crimes, fist fighting, wife beating, auto wreck, so on. Those gaps would close almost totally or whites would move to the lead if you're just looking at people that are the same age in the same city. So all, all this has to be done before you can really make any point whatsoever, mm. I guess. Yeah. I'm, well, the, that's the what I'm sensing. And I'm speaking intuitively as opposed to uh, your intelligence and knowledge based argument um, that people cling to these ideas such as CRT or these analyses of, you know, they see a problem, they want to fix a problem. How do we mobilize people to fix this problem? We inject simplicity into uh, the movement in order for it to get going. And then uh, the illogical part of that is kind of left in the dust behind the momentum that's formed on a political level. Right. So you, I, I can see all of your arguments, like breaking things down into a very rational way. But at the same time, power and political power doesn't necessarily need that. Or okay. eventually, will it catch up to them? How do you, in, in your opinion, how do you kind of fix people's view of things and then go forth from there to fixing the problems that they were originally set to fix? Well, I, I think as scientists and journalists, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of people staying in their lane, like the 6'10 guy under the basket should focus on getting rebounds. He shouldn't be shooting threes, to use a sports analogy. That's actually very relevant to the modern NBA, college basketball. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it, similarly, I think as a scientist or as a journalist, I mean, my responsibility or yours would be simply to keep telling the truth. You know, publish papers, give lectures, talk to yeah. youth groups, you know, tell the truth. Okay. Um, will politicians, I mean, I think what you're saying, you said it very politely, but is that politicians often lie by using simplified versions of reality to mobilize people and to get them angry. Like, yeah, that, that's mm -hmm. absolutely true. What can you do about that? Vote against them, I guess. Well, um, no, I mean, it, well, if teachers are putting that into right. kids' heads, then that's a different thing. You can't vote out the university system if it is, and I'm not saying it is, but if it is producing a bunch of very radicalized um, people with a very dull view of the world, then how do you change that? Well, again, I, th I think that at a certain level, you simply publicize it. I mean, one of the books that I'm interested in writing, and in fact, as I recall, a publisher has offered a contract for, but is an update of some of these books like Tenured Radicals that came out about 30 years ago, where mm -hmm. the author said, well, in 30 years, someone should check back in on the campus and see whether it's become less extreme, whether it's become less, you know, post-1960s. And the answer is no, it's probably become more extreme if you look at 
uh, political partisanship. I recently looked at the Econ Live data for the uh, political affiliations of professors. And as I recall correctly, 20% of them or so identified as leftists. Another 26% were radicals. This is in the social sciences only, I should clarify. Like in engineering, there wasn't really an issue, or banking or something. But uh, and eighteen percent of them were Marxist or communist, like openly identified with political Marxism. And those are three separate questions. So I mean, if you add those together, you get about sixty, sixty-five percent of people that identify with the hard left. So I, I definitely think that's something that's going on on college campuses. Um, as re, how do you respond to it? Like I just said, I mean, you write a national book about it. You debate the people that are advocating this. You tell parents and activate alumni associations. I think that the CRT and the schools, because so many parents got to see what their kids were learning during COVID. I think that's why that became a national focus. And I do think kind of the mama bears are going to go into some of these school districts and clean house. Like, and the, the, the CRT stuff, even HBD stuff, as long as that's taught as one potential theory in a class that also teaches the standard and yeah. quantitative reality, don't really care. But hmm. it, it went beyond that. I mean, there were a number of schools in, I believe, New York that had classes in pornography literacy where the idea was that men who were watching porn and starting to have sex at 13 or 14 weren't being respectful enough of women because of the content they were getting. So they were going to watch porn and they were going to talk about it with feminist teachers. And like just thinking about the nonsense level of this, like how many people would volunteer for the class, how many might hook up with their teacher. Like my friends and I were just sort of laughing. But if you're a mom, you probably can succeed in getting that class out of the schools. And I think that's a good thing. So you can aggressively respond to this stuff when you see it. Uh, as an ordinary citizen, and I think you should. But uh, getting back to your original point, I mean, you asked, are there negative philosophies that could impact society? And sure, and as we saw during the Capitol riot, there are also some of those on the right. I mean, the, the foolish idea that, I don't know how foolish it is, but the idea that your entire country is sort of rigged against you and that there are cabals of satanic monsters hiding yeah, yeah. That, so there's there's that stuff. But the the more prevalent stuff on the political left, I mean, what are some of these ideas? The Black Lives Matter idea that there are thousands of people being murdered every year by racist cops. The associated idea that there is massive, constant interracial crime, which is mostly white on black. It's worth taking a sentence just to note how crazy that is. I mean, violent crime involving blacks and whites, first of all, is like three percent of serious crime. Um, most crime involves someone you know. I'm, I'm combining violent and indexed property crimes for that figure, but mm -hmm. it, trust me, that's correct. It's like 600,000 crimes out of 20 million serious crimes in a year. Now, even given that, it's 80% black on white. So you're taking this fringe issue that's mostly black on white and that's 2 to 3% of the crimes, and you're talking about it constantly and pretending it's mostly white on black. There's, there's really no excuse for that. I mean, that's, that's a major negative idea. And this stuff, the idea that there's a lot of suburban white on urban black crime and that the cops are facilitating it, this is kind of the poison pill inside defund the police. The idea is that if we defund the police, this genocide will end. The reality is that in a typical year, between 40 and 60 percent of the murders in the country are just young black men shooting each other. Um, a number that's actually increased through this whole political, politically correct era. There used to be. Why a is that not brought up? I just I don't understand. If Black Lives Matter, why isn't that those Black Lives Mattering? What's your opinion but, on that? That's one of those great smart citizen questions. So it, it's worth <laughs> unpacking this just one level quickly. The reason for all of this BS about racism is that there are still a lot of problems in the black community, and racism among upper middle class whites has become the only acceptable explanation for them. 
So, I mean, obviously, I don't agree. Like, there's a genetic problem with those Negroes. I mean, I think if you took a bunch of 27-year-old white kids and you put them in high-rise, we, we did this. Little Italy and Cloverland and so on were the most dangerous neighborhoods of almost every city through, like, the 60s and 70s. But, I mean, then because of conflict with urban blacks caused by busing, white slums virtually ended, which is something I'd be interested in writing a book about, the disappeared white slum. We mourn them. But anyway, I, I don't think that there's a there's a genetic basis for this, anything like that. But if you talk on the politically correct left, the obvious cultural explanations for this, like 70 percent fatherlessness, are also unacceptable. So what can explain, you know, the Holocaust on the streets and racism? This focus on this single explanation, this univariate one factor explanation is so intense that it subsumes the questions that you're bringing up. And it's very bizarre to have these conversations in reality, because on a basketball court with my black buddies, golf course with a diverse group, barbershop with a diverse group, when I talk to other youngish, reasonably successful men, everybody knows what I'm talking about. If I said there's a lot of violence in black and, for that matter, poor white communities, it's caused by the fact no one has a dad. We need to get in there and coach some football. What can we do? Should we have more cops? Everyone is going to have coherent things to say in response to the obviously accurate first point. But when you're discussing this in, say, an academic seminar, a massive amount of the focus is on almost invisible, unreal types of racism, the white gaze, the prejudice of the past, which actually might play some role. But, you know contemporary misogynoir, the basic fact that 80% of the houses don't have a dad there, and so there are a lot of young guys, mostly black, shooting each other, is never brought up. But you're absolutely right. That's the elephant in the room. It's the entire problem. Last hmm. sentence here, this actually is something you see more than you might expect. There are a lot of sectors of social science where, to me, some guy on either that traditionally liberal or that center-right quantitative front that we've been talking about this whole conversation has come in and basically explained the problem. Uh, there's a guy named John Lott who wrote a book called More Guns, Less Crime. He gets a little gun-lovey for me, but it's a great book. Um, he points out that the number of police officers and the number of armed citizens in a neighborhood is one of at least the two or three biggest predictors of its crime rate. Boom. I mean, that no shit. There, for a long time, the joke was that Little Italy was the neighborhood in Chicago with the fewest burglaries. Like, they had a lot of other crime, but there was mm. no one that would go to Little Italy in 1980 Chicago and rob a house. Because people, although they enjoy God, may not want to meet him quite so soon. So Lot just broke this down and said, this is, this is one of the two big predictors. Tough cops, preferably non-biased, and tough citizens with guns. Dad's in the home. Um, there's another book, John Ogbu, uh, The Shaker Heights Situation. John Ogbu, um, African social scientist, probably one of the top 20, 30 social science analysts of the past couple of decades. He went to an integrated suburb in uh, Ohio, and he, asked, he was asked why certain groups, notably including black men, also including jocks, um, I believe first the white sons of first-generation college students, but in particular black people, why these groups were doing worse in school. And he studied for a year. He's a black guy, pro-black. But what he found is the groups that were doing badly, almost to a man and woman, studied less. Like, that was it. He found that young black students who had sort of a shopping mall culture in this environment, high school jocks, a couple other groups, spend less time with the books. And the amount of time they spend studying directly predicts the grades they get. You don't need to talk about racism. You don't need to talk about genes. Most of all groups live in middle class communities now. Why is the Asian guy beating the white guy who's beating the black guy who's sometimes beating the Latino guy? because that's how much time they spend with books in their first language. Like, that. that's it. 
So we very often have these questions answered. I mean, Heather McDonald, the war on cops, looked at exactly why people get shot by the police. And it's a very specific breakdown. It's like young males, I believe all, mostly working class, at least half black, engaged in potentially violent altercations with law enforcement officers in urban areas. So you often have someone come in and just break down why things happen. And then the remarkable thing is that this is very often ignored in the resulting academic debate, where you look through Google Scholar and you find that, you know, Ibram Kendi has 5,500 past five year citations and Tom Sowell has 400. So that's what? How does that work? I don't know. That's a real thing. Again, it goes back to the, there are ideas that are more powerful than other ideas, even though the other ideas that are less powerful are closer to the truth or are, I, I guess, deal with data in more sophisticated ways. How do, that, that sounds like a political problem. Sounds like a political problem if we can't dispel these ideas that are false or that are ignored, or the, all, you know, adversely are ignored. Yeah, I, I think that this is now I actually I, I don't I'm not a big fan of conspiracy theories on either political side. So when people start talking about George Soros or the Koch yeah. brothers, I usually just go get a There's drink. a butt coming. I can I can feel it. There's, there's, there's butt. one butt. The but I do think that one one person who intentionally or not had a lot of their theories come true was uh, Gramsci or Gramsci, the Italian uh, communist philosopher, because his argument was essentially that it's actually dryly funny if you read him. I mean, his argument is that RIDs, this would be the term he used, aren't exactly going to take power in the military anytime soon. Or in, although, you know, I'm just saying some things lately. But in agriculture, in sport, you know, so on down the line. I mean, your industry is versus business, the church. There are many arenas. And by the way, this is one reason for non-panic on the political right to some extent. I mean, there, there are massive institutions. I mean, the government of any city under 50,000 people that are dominated by this political philosophy. So it's, it's important not to pay attention to hysterics from anyone. But uh, Gramsci did make one very valuable point, which is that in the absence of these other bases of power, what the red should do is take control of discourse. So, I mean, media, we now have social media as well, secondary education, higher education, the NGO sector. We sometimes almost forget this, but I mean, all of these major activist groups have moved far, far to the left to the point that like, I stopped giving to the Sierra Club when they stopped talking about immigration and population growth. I mean, I'd never been a massive giver, generally anonymous. I'm not going to overhype my role, but I mean... It's bizarre to see an environmental group ignoring the fact that the population is growing and that we have mass immigration across the southern border. You can favor no immigration. You can favor, as I do, a more streamlined system. But Mm -hmm. the simple reality is that the more people you have living in Death Valley, which is where Las Vegas is located, the more environmental danger and damage you're going to have. So the environmentalists stopped saying this. And if you look at the Sierra Club and the Audubon Society, that's specifically because a $100 million gift was conditioned on their not saying it. Back in the early OOs, this is something that's been traced in journalism and political science. People know it. It's just it's ignored. It's just under the table. But I mean, the the Gramscian argument was that if RIDs capture these these mechanisms, they can get out what would normally be fringe ideas to an audience that may not be receptive, but will still have to hear them. Yeah. And I, I think this is very much what you see with a lot of this. Like, I don't mean to pick on individuals that actually have gender dysphoria or anything like this. This is this is never the focus of my writing, actually. But I mean, 
the, the trans argument, I think, is a good example of this just in empirical terms. Like, if you ask people, do you believe that without gender alterative surgery, a male, a biological male, XY chromosomal order, who identifies as a woman can simply be a woman. Uh, when I asked this on Twitter with the survey monkey link, the response rate was 99% no, 1% yes. You can still see that poll on the page. Um, I've seen other data that goes as high as 20, 30% yes, they can just identify. But the simple reality is that the large majority of people don't believe that's true based on everything that I've seen. Not even really speculating whether it is or not, although I certainly have an opinion, I suspect you do. But just this is not a mass opinion. However, I suspect that if it weren't for the constant presentation of this particular issue in the media from a left-wing perspective, the positions here would be a hundred and zero. So just having that outlet, getting out this information and blocking other information is a power position. You know, the old Mark Twain line, never never pick a fight with anyone who buys, uh, what is it, ink by the barrel, owns his own printing press. I mean, you, you very much still see this even today. So that that is why, on the one hand, utterly fringe ideas are at least discussed. But on the other, things that sound reasonable but are just wrong, racism is a bigger issue than crime, are treated as mainstream. That's how you get Kendi to 5,000 citations and sold to 500. Yeah. And then uh, you have, uh, well, and then you have the young people immersed in those ideas and then not taught the capability of critically deconstructing them or being punished whenever they do socially. Um, I'm not going to say that teachers are punishing students for not agreeing, but uh, students can gang up on each other uh, within the social justice, specifically within the social justice uh, cl climate right now. So... So, so it sounded like you said that the everything that works uh, is kind of on the center or on the right is not communist, and everything that and what we're seeing is is these organs of uh, discourse are the ones that are uh, pushing out these radical ideas, but most people aren't adhering to those ideas. Well, I think a lot of people know the emperor has no clothes. I mean, yeah. the, the the impact of the impact of the widely presented false ideas is one that they're given any credence at all. So, I mean, like Tumblr, for example, currently recognizes, I believe, fifty eight genders. And I'm not going to pull up the whole list, like what's the list of the Tumblr and Twitter genders, like Ambio gender and Starflight yeah, yeah. gender and Bunny Self and so on. But the only reason that anyone takes that seriously, in my opinion, and I've yet to meet a left-leaning psychologist who believes that any of these are things. We're not talking about gender dysphoria here or mm -hmm. what used to be called hermaphroditism or something like that. The only reason that's taken seriously at all is that it's presented constantly in a basically sympathetic light by, you know, bitch, bust, Jezebel, media that's pretty close to the center. Um I think that's one point. The other point, I guess, would be pretty much what you're saying, that when it comes to things that are arguable, there are more people arguing one side than the other. But, oh, getting getting back to my point, I, I think most people know a lot of this is not real. So you, you have the effects where people are more reluctant to discuss it. You have the effect where people at least consider the alternative. Another thing I've noticed is that people believe that their locality is somehow different from the rest of the world. So if you ask people, do you think that crime is a major problem in black or poor white or whatever communities in your city, the response rate is absolutely massive. Yes. And if you ask people, does that outpace racism or classism as a problem? I think you'd probably get 85 to 90 percent yeses. 
I would suspect, I haven't seen this data yet this year, that if you asked that nationally, people would probably say, well, no, racism is a bigger problem or something like that. Uh, and that, that, again, reflects the subtle influence of seeing one narrative but not the other. But at the most basic level, yeah, I, I think what you're seeing with CRT is that the majority of people know at some level that a lot of this isn't true, that it's not true that biological sex is a, this complex, tricky thing that's almost impossible to define. Uh, more and more people, partly because of sort of mainstream writers like myself and McDonald just pointing this out, but mm -hmm. have gone, the Washington Post's uh, Killed by Police, The Counted Project is now one of the more popular web pages online, at least so I've heard. I've looked, checked an Alexa ranking once. Mm -hmm. But I mean, oh, that might be for the entire site. Anyway, the point is just that you, people know to some extent that a lot of people aren't being murdered by the police. Uh, I think the interracial crime numbers most people are probably aware of, you know, so on down the line. So there are two things going on. One is that there definitely is a concentration of power among the people saying this stuff. The other is that we're a very federalized country with a lot of news sources out there. And most people that are accessing conservative media, black media, alternative media, just anything on Substack so on down the line are, are pretty aware of the truth. And if you look on Twitter, Facebook, so on, aren't shy about sharing that. So I don't think that the attempt to market this stuff successfully, uh, cultural appropriation, white privilege, so on, has been successful. I think it has been more successful than it should have been given the strength of the argument. I, like, mm -hmm. I think the opposition here is playing very well with the weak deck. But just one final example here, the polling on Latinx is finally out. This is, this is, I think, a pretty good example. So, the, as you know, people in the, both the gender studies and racial grievance field have long been offended that Spanish is an OA romance language. Like, the words have masculine or feminine endings. So, so there was a, it is very deeply problematic. Deeply. Deeply. I might go so far as to call it non-binary phobic. But, so, the... <laughs> The proposal in an actual published paper was that we refer to Latinos as Latinxes, uh, L-A-T-I-N-X, Fultz, F-O-L-X. Um, and so Pew, after a year, finally asked Latinos what they thought of this. And the majority of Latinos, no, it was 24% was of Latinos had absolutely heard of it, knew what it was. Almost half of Latinos, I think, had heard of it in passing. Percentage of Latinos that wanted to use this term, whether they had heard of it before or not, was three. Um, and it broke down specifically by group. So like among college age females, it was like eight. That was the highest it ever got. But among like working class men, it was none. Like th this is not something that's going, there are a lot of working class male Latino guys. This, yeah. So this is not something that's ever going to take off in that community. And I, I think that's very common. I think very often people are just waiting for someone to come along and say, no, the last president was black, vice president's black, you're not oppressed, get out of here. And the person who says that is going to find they have an automatic base of support. The problem is that they're also going to have an automatic base of opposition. So many people are reluctant to say that. Okay, yeah. So you, your um, prognosis is just more people speaking out, more people talking, more people arguing and laughing when something's funny and so on. I think laughing when something's funny is very big. I actually see, I see a big fight here. I think we are going to win. 
in the sense of people that know that the USA of today is not the USA of 1954 and that people with penises are generally male and so on down the line, I think we have some advantages in terms of just reality. This is the same thing that I guess much of the same group had when debating creationists. If you go back to the 80s and 90s, there is reality and then there's fantasy. So I think that smart, normal citizens often have the advantage in that they're advocating for reality against fantasy. Um, what do I actually think is going to happen here? There's a power struggle going on to some extent. The advantage for the smart, regular citizen block is that there is an exponentially probably expanding number of different venues to pump out content in. Okay. So, I mean, when I was a kid, um, and I'm only late 30s, but I mean, we had maybe 25 real TV channels. Like the Playboy and adult ones are still just flickering bars on the TV late at night. You know, ESPN was there. I think there was only one. There wasn't two or three, you know, PBS, CBS, ABC, NBC, so on. And I mean, at 10, 15 years before that, you just had those three or four. Yeah. Um, now, obviously, you have every major YouTube channel. You have Twitter. You have different platforms. I mean, well beyond Spotify or Rumble, so on down the line. People that have been completely deplatformed across all the mainstream stuff have 50,000 followers on Gab and so on. So I think mm -hmm. whether or not people will admit where they originally got an idea, like it's worth looking up the origins of Trump derangement syndrome sometime. But I mean, I think that that feeding from 4chan, Reddit, Almost everything online, the active gamer sites, all that stuff, that's never going to go away. So it's going to be very, very difficult to really maintain information control, even though I think that they're complete garbage. I mean, there's a site called InfoWars that gets a couple million hits a week. So, I mean, that that is a reality. That's something that exists today. The What I, what I do see, though, is that the boomer media exec types are starting to realize this. I mean, starting to realize it more than they have before. So when people talk about conservatives getting deplatformed on new media, that's not actually what I see. I see a lot of that. But I also noticed that, for example, Minister Farrakhan was taken down. Chapo Trap House, my favorite dirtbag left site, was taken down. Not there's a whole lot of competition for that prize with me. But I mean, like, you all blacks trillions of the great repara pro reparations trash talking page was taken down. Cop block was taken down, kind of a mix of left and libertarian. You could really just go on and on with this. I mean, Laura Loomer on the right, obviously, at yeah. Nero, RIP, back in the day, the first major Twitter sacrifice. Um, but I think what all these people had in common, because I've obviously, I'm, you're literally going from cop block to Milo Yiannopoulos on that list, is that they were content creators that challenged, in terms of audience size, some of the traditional outlets. And I think that even now when you see like the, the constant attack on Ben Shapiro for being number one or two on Facebook, but then then on Rogan and then on people that are pretty apolitical kind of tech types, Tim Pool, what you're doing is you're looking at the top three or four people at every point as a media guy that are on the top of your rival's leaderboard. Michael Tracy, the, the frantic screaming about the perfectly pleasant upper middle class Barry Weiss set up a Substack has people on it. Hey! You know, it's, <laughs> the idea is if people want to read Weiss and Iglesias and Tracy and a couple of these other people, they don't need to open up, you know, the New York Daily News or the Times or whatever. They could just go online and pay a dollar. So that's the source of the hysterics. It's not that anyone actually thinks Barry Weiss is a Nazi and Barry Weiss is a preppy Jewish mom. It's that you there's a substantial challenge now to that that traditional media enterprise. So I think that they're they're going to fight hard, mm -hmm. but I don't think they can win. Because the brand names on the other side are run by people that are smarter and that are nearly as identifiable 
and you can just move within that infinitely plastic internet world. So like, kind of last comment on this, but I mean, I, I got out of grad school pretty recently. So like, I know a lot of girls that are on OnlyFans. Like the typical OnlyFans service provider is like a 31-year-old college graduate student paying to finish that PhD. Um, and when OnlyFans banned porn a couple days ago, there were legit hysterics. And like, yeah, it's funny. Like people make jokes about like the thought incel wars online and so on. But it's, it's also pretty stupid. They were the porn platform, whatever. But so I talked to a couple friends about this. And then I was like, whatever, I'm a man, a bit conservative, if anything. I'm not going to worry about this, but let's see what happens. What happened was that within a day, they were all on another platform called Friendsly. Like it literally and Friendsly is now like the number three app across both app stores. Like and people are joking about this online. Like it's a thought migration. You know, like there's a lot of commentary. I, I take no position <laughs> on it. But the, the reality, there they are on the Savannah. You know, but like <laughs> the... <laughs> Funny, though, that is, you know, the, the simple reality is that that entire sex work business, um, like when things pop from back page back to Craigslist, back then to list, more private listing servers, all that took two days. This took a day. I mean, I don't see it as possible to deplatform Joe Rogan or Tim Pool or some of these guys, at least not more than like one a year. Because, I mean, every time you do it, there's going to be, you know, 5% of your audience is going to leave your platform and the media, the heterodox media is going to run all these pieces and people are going to call you and so on. And then that guy is going to go to like Rumble and have 85% of his audience. So how often and how successfully can you do this? I don't think that often or that successfully, which is good. Mm -hmm. The, you just, you took me on a whirlwind. Now I have to kind of catch up to that. So the, um, the failure of the institutions I was going to ask about, but I think you, you touched on that. I did want to kind of talk about COVID in a covert manner because the censors are looking at me. But that is a good – is that a good inflection point where truth and fiction are so intertwined that nobody can make sense of things? Because what I see on – you know, in, in Twitter is this – everybody's just choosing their own studies and everybody has this uh, prejudice with regards to masking and vaxxing and, and all this stuff. And, and it just, it's, it's impossible to sort out what's going to happen. But then you do see the rise of a federal government that nobody trusts. Everybody equally distrusts the federal government, but they might be doing something in certain people's favor by intruding into people's lives and doing all these mandates with regards to freedom of movement um, and, and injecting uh, novel uh, vaccines into people. What do you see that as a landscape where, uh, you know, narrative and truth is almost uh, is in a very high state of, of tension? Well, I think this is an example of the kind of problems that we're talking about, where so many things are politicized by partisans on the right, partisans on the left, partisans on the left again, the media. But I repeat myself when I say partisans on the left. But I mean, like, just going on, going banter aside, I mean, I think that this is a situation where it is very difficult to disentangle truth from biased fact from fiction. Um, I am a published 
academic who's pretty good with the quantitative methods, and I have, I have trouble myself. I do think that there is a pretty solid core of reality here, though. Um, I actually, I think the CDC has done a good job at the level below the Fauci's, below the public pronouncers. They've done a good le- job of breaking down deaths by age, sex, region. Um, they've done some decent work on masks. There's a good story in ma- or paper on masks that just ran in the Daily Mail, actually. Uh, Brit scientists this time. But I, I, I do think there's a truth out there. What I think is notable about COVID is, the one, the level of fear, and two, the distance between the narrative and reality. So the COVID-19 pandemic was real, was a pandemic, devastating, like AIDS in the 80s, huge problem. I'm not someone that's minimizing this at all, once again. Mm. Um, With that said, the hysteria about COVID-19 did not match the reality. Um, COVID-19 last year, when I looked, was the, I believe, fourth leading cause of death in the USA, although that's with all accidents and incidents combined into one category. If not, very openly, it would be the third leading cause of death in the USA. But that's still behind heart disease. That's behind cancer. Took about 350,000 lives, as I recall. The average age of those victims, if our data was similar to the Italian data and the first wave American data, would be about 81 or 82. So COVID-19 killed 300-some thousand people. This is the first year. We don't have this year's data in yet. Uh, mm-hmm. Average age, 80, let's say. That's bad, but it's not strikingly unusual. I mean, a typical bad flu year will kill close to 100,000 people, average age, 70. So okay. all people, so this is three times, three and a half times worse than the yeah, flu. Three to five, I'd go four. Yeah, it's, it's bad. But I mean, like when you TC, the uh, European consulting brand, took a poll in the USA, France, Britain and Belgium. And they asked people how many uh, citizens they thought had died from COVID-19. And at least in the United States, the answer was nine percent. The average middle class respondent thought that nine percent of the population had died from COVID. And this correlated directly with attitudes toward lockdown, masking, so on. What actually happened during COVID was that 300 plus thousand seniors died. Some, some young people as well. But the total number of people under 18 that died from COVID, last I looked, was 349. So the difference between the reality and the fear was really, really striking here. And that's something I see more and more in a lot of different arenas in the USA. Well, the the um, same thing with uh, Black Lives Matter and police uh, killing of black men. If you ask people of a certain political leaning, their numbers get more and more inflated. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is this is another sort of well done large end study. I mean, this was Skeptic Research Center. They asked a bunch of people, um, what's the total number of unarmed black men you think are that you believe is killed? I guess it's a singular by police in a specific typical year. The among people that identified as leftists, just standard, very liberal on a questionnaire, not radical, not communist. As I recall, 30 plus percent of them thought that the number was about 1000 or a bit more. Uh, 14 to 15% thought the number was about 10,000. This is just leftist liberals. And 7% thought it was more than that. Now, to put this in context, there were only about 15,000 murders in a year. And maybe half of those, like we do have a crime problem, but it's not that serious as a disparity ratio. I mean, so maybe half of them max involved black people, 7,000, 8,000. So these people thought that more people were killed by police while unarmed and begging than are killed. Like their assumption for the number of unarmed black men that was killed, at least when you look at the two further prongs of that graph, is equal to either the number of all black people that are killed in a year or the number of all people that are killed in a year. You know, with all working class whites, Hispanics, so on thrown in. So that's that's really remarkable. And yes, you saw that with with COVID as well. 
So I think one of the things you saw there is the this disparity between risk and perception. The other thing that you really saw with COVID is a lack of understanding, and this ties right in, of the pattern of the disease, the pattern of the threat. So the issue with COVID was that the overall IFR of COVID-19 was 0.26%, figures for a fatality rate of 3%, or what's called CFR, measured cases in hospitals. Uh, I've seen it ranked as high as 0.62%, but that's pretty unlikely. But the the fatality rate for COVID increases to almost 10% as you get into elder seniors. So you have a couple of facts, like one, COVID, 0.26% IFR. Two, COVID only killed about one American in a thousand, at least first year. But three, COVID is nearly 10% fatal for seniors. And Mm -hmm. that, to me, from a leadership perspective, the the question would be, how can we protect our elders? Which is what the Great Barrington Declaration focused on, which is what Sweden focused on. And everyone else seemed to be completely defeatist about this. This is one of the things that really struck me about COVID. The the idea, whenever I brought up in something like a, a local meeting of, of leaders, as it were, I mean, I, I had until recently, I was an ombudsman. I had a, a guest executive position in pretty good-sized college. Uh, I myself am a writer. I'm active in local politics. And I've been at a couple tables where people are talking about, I mean, is there any way, to, what, what could you do? Like, if I ran such and such to business, what would you, how would you recommend helping people? And whenever you would bring up the fact that this is specifically concentrated among seniors, and there are things that the Europeans did, like, for example, have the workers in nursing homes work in one-week shifts um, that would would protect seniors, the response was something along the lines of, well, we can't do that, or that's not realistic, or what if someone goes home and then goes out again and kisses their boyfriend and gets COVID and comes back and doesn't take the test that day. It was just very sort of dismissive of this idea of everyone dying is old. Um, I don't know why that was, but it hmm. definitely was part of COVID response in the USA. Was the, was the response instead, let's just lock down everything, right? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Rather yeah, than was- rather than focusing on this one population, we can't trust everybody to do that. So we're just going to punish everybody or enforce uh, wide scale lockdown. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you mentioned that literally almost everyone to die from COVID, we've known this. Let's actually, I don't want to slow down the interview by pulling up an article, but it was, it was the, I believe, the Times of India looking at the Italian data in May of 2020. They'd gotten the first wave of data from uh, Italy. And while you could make, you know, friendly rival jokes about either of those two countries, they're great, powerful G30 nations. The Indians were cracking down, analyzing the Italian data. They found out the average death was 81. They found out everything I've said a year ago, a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. Um, the average person who died had, I think, nine comorbidities in that first wave. So, I mean, you're talking about, for example, obese, asthmatic, 81-year-old individuals. Um, and th- this has been known And yes, uh, getting to the point, the response when you bring it up, could we protect obese, asthmatic, 80-year-old individuals was either, well, no, that's depriving them of their civil rights, or (laughs) no, because we don't trust CNAs or whatnot to follow the rules and not, you know, quote, unquote, get laid or go out. It was was all just very defeatist, so we got to shut down everything. (laughs) And that just empirically doesn't make sense. I mean, why not just give cut N95s or respirator masks, even a respirator mask of $30, $40 to seniors? It, it never struck me as logical. Not that I am. It's very easy to Monday morning quarterback. I don't like it. But if I were to be in charge of, say, a state, DeSantis did a good job, I think, objectively, partisanship aside. The three things I would have done were cancel truly large events, 
I do think holding the Sturgis bike rally is pretty stupid. Or Lollapalooza, by the way, just same thing on the left. But there's obviously a million people hooking up in public and you don't have vaccination requirements. Like, yes, of course, you're going to get more disease. This is the Louis Pasteur could have figured this out. This is not cutting edge medical science. Hmm. Um, But I would have done that. I would have protected seniors really intensely with the recognition that at the end of life, if you're 85 and in a respite home, you are eventually going to die. Like shutting down all of society would not even have been a possibility, but definitely nurses working in shifts, cut respirator masks to seniors, the best mask to seniors, coalitions of people shopping for seniors, all that, all that stuff some of the Europeans did would have done. And third, I would have encouraged not mandated basic NPI. Stay separate. Businesses can mandate masks, partition shields, all that. And I think you would have seen, you know, in Riley or whatever the state would be called, a very standard, probably ahead of the curve COVID numbers. I mean, I, I've seen very little difference between Texas and Florida and to California and New Jersey yeah, in similar states. If anything, Cali and New Jersey are in the lead in terms of deaths. So and I know they are, in fact. So I don't I don't see a lot of evidence for much of what we did, because I don't think we followed the pattern of disease. The pattern of disease was that seniors and the morbidly obese were dying. And we were doing things like locking down gyms, locking down couples, beaches, that kind of thing. I don't think Great that did schools. anything. Yeah, the, even now double masking in the schools. I mean, there again, the total number of kids that have gotten COVID and died is 346. And kid includes everybody up to age 19, probably. If you look at when the cutoff year would be age 18, certainly. So you're, the number of five-year-olds collapsing with this, I mean, zero, probably. I know uh, zero to four deaths when I looked was three. So that's that's what we're we're keeping in mind. I mean, senior deaths, 300,000, zero to four deaths, three. Mm-hmm. But that that um, constant of fear to get back to the uh, political idea of power, that, that fear uh, grips are. Is that um, an existential threat or, or something, uh, some sort of threat to the functioning of our society? And how do we uh, fight that? That's an interesting one, actually. I think that that's a very good point that I haven't uh, previously heard or made. Yeah, when you add up the existential threats to our society, uh, whether you're talking about CRT, whether you're talking about the far, far right panic about, you know, hordes sweeping over the borders from that exotic region, northern Mexico and taking over. I mean, there's a little left fear of uh, one sixers coming to everyone. That was, that was my next one. Yeah. All these things, all these existential threats and fake existential threats, what they have in common, I suppose, is this undercurrent of terror. To a certain extent, a fanatic is simply someone who recognizes a real threat and exaggerates it. If there's no real threat, you're a fantasist. If you're right about the extent of the threat, you're smart, you're a prepper at worst. So to be a fanatic, you have to recognize a threat, but greatly exaggerate it. I've noticed this a lot when I talk about IQ, actually, of all the random ass things. But I've gotten involved a couple of times in the sort of hereditary and culturalist CRT IQ debate. And one of the first things I noticed, because, again, competent enough with the methods, I actually just pulled up the PISA scores and looked at the IQs for every country. And right now, the IQ for black Americans, at least per this test, is about 92. Hispanic Americans, 93. Whites, 100. Uh, Asians, like 103, 104. None of these IQs are especially unusual. Like, the, the black IQ is equivalent to Ireland 10 years ago or to Romania. Um, the Hispanic IQ, Mexico, logically enough. I mean, but the uh, white IQ, be most of Europe, Asian IQ is good. I don't personally think there's much of any genetic 
component here. The study rates between these groups vary to a degree that exactly explains the gap. Hmm. I mean, it's one of those facts that you see and notice and it, it makes a pattern make sense. But say that 30 percent of this was genetic and you'd eventually wind up with an IQ gap of 97 to 101. I'm not sure that unless you were really focused on becoming an astronaut, that would matter very much. These are interesting real numbers, and anyone who's familiar with GRE scores or PISA scores or whatever can go out and get them. I mean, so that that was my reaction. Then I kind of withdrew from the debate. It was like, okay, they've got us by two points. Let's hit the books harder. You know, that, that was it. That was that was the whole reaction. But I think that for both sides, what I've seen a lot from the black side is just sort of panic where they won't look at the numbers. Like, I've mentioned this, like, we're actually getting better on IQ, guys. And it's sort of like, what, you mean the white man's test? We don't need to be taking that bullshit in the first place. Why are you talking with those Nazis, platforming Nazis? <laughs> like, that's one side of it. And then the other side of it is, like, the hard right guys, like, I don't know. I think all of the seven-point gap is genetic. And it's like, one, who cares? But two, I, I don't think so. I don't think any scientist thinks that. But, like, when you get into these, even these sort of fringe debates, yeah. Um. I guess I, I've almost lost track of the point here. People will often refuse to see reality or be driven by fear away from obvious conclusions. And yes, this is this is much more relevant in situations that have much more practical day-to-day -day implication, which is a problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, you have two books out, at least on Audible. You probably have more, but I only saw two on Amazon, I think. Is there another in the works? Yeah, well, this is this is my favorite part of uh, any interview, plugging my uh, my catalog here. But no, yeah, I have I have two major, by which I mean like best selling for more than a couple of days on Amazon books. I hate crime hoax, which looks at the epidemic of bullshit race accusations. Jussie Smollett makes it in, at least in terms of a couple one-sentence bars. Yasmin Saweed, if you remember, you know, my hijab was torn. I was nearly sexually assaulted on the New York Six, Air Force Academy, you know, so on down the line, Covington Catholic. All of these incidents that have dramatically dominated U.S. media coverage, the church burnings, the University of Missouri, swastikas written in human crap, and then turned out to be largely or entirely fakes. So I look at why this happened. I mean, why you have hundreds of these cases within a window of about five years, whatever percent of the total you might argue this is, dozens of them in the public eye. Uh, what makes people do this? Why they're so concentrated in collegiate environments? Well, I think the answer there is kind of obvious. That's hoax. Uh, Taboo, subtitled 10 Facts You Can't Talk About, looks at all of the arguments that we've been discussing in passing throughout this conversation, from the BLM argument about police murder, to the argument that there's a great deal of interracial crime and it's mostly committed by whites, to the claims of systemic racism, to some of the alt-right claims about IQ, to the argument about cultural appropriation, where I actually talked to some Asians and asked them what they think of this idea, just so on down the line through all these arguments. And I ask merit immigration, and I try to figure out what the facts are. Like, is it impossible to build a wall on the border? Is there a ton of interracial crime? Are there a lot of cops murdering people? What I often find is that the mainstream left and even right claims in the USA are often complete bullshit. I've, I've said that a lot through this interview to try to avoid it. Just things that are not substantiated by any fact pattern. People will claim that there are tens of thousands of black deaths, and you can put that in quotes, and the number turns out to be 12 or something like that, 18 last year, 17 last year. So, I mean, that that's taboo. What is the reality out there? I've written two uh, smaller books. One is uh, The $50 Million Question, which is just my dissertation in book form, with, quite frankly, one of those publishers that contacts grad students 
put, puts out, you know, the top half of the dissertations that year in uh, in print form. That's a scholarly book. It's full of charts, graphs. I mean, as usual, the publisher, I think, expected to sell like 90 of them because I became known later on. Uh, this small academic book has moved quite a few copies. And the fourth, I am the lead author, not the, I'm the first author, and the author of a couple essays in Red, White, and Black, which is the 1776 Project's anthology of kind of right-leaning but pro-black social science. So the latter two of those books are a lot more wonky, obviously, than Taboo, which has mm -hmm. a bondage mask on the cover and is a discussion of stuff you're not supposed to talk about. <laughs> but all of them are all of them are easily available on Amazon and have moved you know, pretty sizable quantities. If you order the book, you'll get the book in two days. So I encourage people to check them out. Yeah, I, I, I'm getting through uh, the uh, hate hoax one. It's really actually actually kind of entertaining. Actually, it's well done. What's next, though? What do you what do you what's coming up? Are you taking a break? Well, I've been offered. I remember having a conversation with James Lindsay about this, where he's like, if you write a book that hits like best selling anything at one point, like people will contact you and offer you other books and you have to like kind of look at them and see what you want to write. So I've written I wrote a book called Alt Wrongs, which does for the right what I did for the left with Taboo. Um, and I actually may put that out for free. Like the the publication deal I was offered for it was pretty bad. Um, so I could easily just upload that online. I think a lot of young guys would benefit from reading it alongside the one ripping up the left. Like, oh, this stuff's all bullshit, too. Hmm. Um, ironically, I actually found a lot of the hard right arguments, diversity has some downsides and so on, were better thought out than the left wing arguments, which is probably a result of not being the mainstream paradigm. You can't of just being constantly challenged. Yeah. I mean, like diversity obviously does cause conflict. But when I when I started reading those pieces, some of which, although published by people on the hard right or in real journals, my flip side, my question was, what's the positive flip side? And it turns out that there obviously are well recognized advantages like decreased group thing, increased patent rate. So the honest scholar to me has to do the left wing piece, the hard right piece, and then the rest of the facts. There's no reason you couldn't throw a measure of racism and a genetics proxy into a model doing what I did earlier, where I talk about age, region, family structure, hours of study. Mm -hmm. Those two things would probably improve the model, but they'd improve it by 5%. Like if you just focus on one of those things and say like, I found the dark knowledge, the mainstream is going to kind of laugh at you because they're going to be a bunch of guys in suits. Like, no, I, I don't think you did. We just called that something more polite and we've been looking at it for the past 20 years. Um, but anyway, so that that is a book I'll put out in the public sphere at some point. The in terms of book offers I've gotten recently, uh, quite a few, actually. I mean, there's some discussion with my publisher, actually, about a book on higher education. I think that'll come out. That really is sort of me slacking. I have an incredibly busy schedule right now. So like apologies to those that are working with me on projects. But I mean, that one, they need, I need to get the prospectus of 20 pages or whatever out. Then I think it'll basically be bought. That could be, we can start working on publicity for that within a couple of weeks. Well, There's another what's that one. about just about higher education in general, or is there an oh, argument? It's an analysis. It's a, it would be a follow up of, so the intro would be, you know, 30 years ago, you know, before becoming a conservative political activist, the writer Dinesh D'Souza looked at higher education. He wrote a book called Illiberal Education. It's okay. still a very good book where he makes a point about the growth of studies programs and so on. And this was followed up by an absolutely serious book that's assigned in college classes, uh, Tenured Radicals, which looks at the percentage of professors that happen to be radicals, extremists, Marxists, and says both these books end with people should check back in 30 years. So the theme of the book is I would check back in 30 years. Um, has higher education become less radical? 
has affirmative action gone away as everyone predicted, including Sandra Day O'Connor about five years from now, right? I mean, but has any of this changed? What happened to women's studies, black studies? You know, what in general, is the college still necessary in its previous form? Hmm. One of my most controversial positions is that way too many people go to college. So we hear constantly that community college should be free. 35% of Americans don't go to college at all. So, But think about that. Like among both white and black males, 70% attend college. You might ask yourself, is the average brother or the average Southern white dude, in fact, down to 25 points below the average, necessarily Yale material? It's an interesting question that you're not supposed to bring up. Um, but mm-hmm. that is that is the system that we have in place right now. Is that sustainable? Can we sustain 75 percent of the population going to college and getting degrees in things like gardening, i.e. horticulture, or sales, and then owing $80,000? So I, I plan on talking about that in the book and then, you know, telling people to check back on me in 30 years. So that's mm. the, the college book tentatively titled something like Still Liberal. Um, I have another book offer for a book on policing, which is. How accurate are a lot of the BLM claims? And also, as that starts to fade, I think, really, in the public eye, what yeah. can cops actually do? Is there a problem at all when it comes to harassing people? And I actually, you know, I'm a little bit right, but I'm also a young, a youngish man in a city. So, like, there were some real questions. Why do I get pulled over every time I'm in a red car? So, like, one chapter I want to focus on the police use of ticketing and the like to fund cities. Um, this is this is something that's underappreciated. In Ferguson, for example, we saw this. This was often presented as just black communities being harassed. If you read the full report, it was all working class communities in the city. And the cops were in specific kind of stop and get cash points. So those were, you know, the road into Mexico City. Like if you went by a certain point, you'd be pulled over and told you had a broken such and such. And you, here's your court date. Here's $150 you owe us. No one ever went to jail. It was just like that kind of thing is a real issue. Mm-hmm. Um you know, what sort of training should police have in terms of actual going hands on fighting that could avoid some of these shootings? So the policing book is another book. And one of the more interesting ones I've been asked is whether I'd be interested in writing kind of an up to date version of the old lies my teacher told me that would look at stuff from, um, again, a centrist or center right perspective as opposed to, you know, a communist perspective. But a lot of the things going on in the schools right now that would take on everything from CRT to creationism. So that one I think I'm going to accept. So all these mm. books, whichever one is written first, should be out in a year. You generally mm. then have to wait six months to release another hardcover book. I mean, just, just yeah. they're not direct competition. But within my a year, money, or two, my money on the market would probably be the teaching one, the schooling one. It would probably be because uh, that that's still gaining momentum. I think that'll peak out um, if you can time that book for a, a year from now. Just going by my sense of things, but I'm not a publisher, yeah. so don't take my recommendations. <laughs> what do you do when you're not thinking uh, a mile a minute? It's sports, um, I, games, D and D. Definitely not D and D. I actually, I recently went and hung out with Tim Pool. I was the guest on the Tim Cast, and actually, it's kind oh. of a lame guest. Like, I left like eleven and just went to sleep because I had a flight back in the early morning. But I mean, like, there's there's a whole compound of people hang out, drink beer, do all this, throw axes, whatnot. But I mean, some of the guy, one of the guys that went out there with me because it was a bunch of us doing business pitches. I was the Tim Cast guest, and there was a guy who wanted to be a reporter, and so on. Good group. Still talk. I've talked to one or two of them. But one of the guys owned like a Dungeons and Dragons franchising company or some such. 
and he wanted to do like a Dungeons and Dragons TV special of Tim's like TV channel. And it was just like, whatever, you know, get money. But like that night, just as I was leaving, they all started playing Dungeons and Dragons. And they were like, it was sort of like, you sure you don't want to stay? And attempting what was uh, ended up opting out. But I've, I've never played D&D in my life. Um, I do, to some extent, identify as a nerd. But, I mean, I was an athlete in high school. I still run very slowly. I play basketball. I like to cook. I, I enjoy sort of pan-Asian cooking. So I'm making mussel and uh, cubed ham fried rice tonight. Wow. Um, have some good hams in Kentucky. Anywho, uh, I like cooking. I like sport. Uh, I like reading for pleasure. Uh, I try to work out for an hour and a half a day. Interestingly, because I'm a semi-pro level cook and I drink a lot of beer, um, I'm strong and even fairly fast, but I'm fat. So okay. uh, kind of, you know, I don't know if the working out's achieving anything. I'm a sort of stout. Uh, I, but, I'm um, sure you give great hugs. I do, actually. I'm a good, good bro hugger. Patch on the yeah. back, all that. <laughs> but I mean, so yeah, that's that I basically do their normal things. I spend, I spend time with my partner. I run, I play ball, I cook. Um, I fish. I, I may go deer hunting this uh, upcoming year. More likely next. I'm a good pistol shot, but not really rifle shot. And I don't feel like following you know, a wounded screaming deer for a mile. It just doesn't sound like a lot of fun to me. Hmm. So. Hmm. Well, that's what you're kind of doing on the political sphere, no? Just taking yeah, a pot shot and following the blood. Yeah, but that's that's a it's a less sympathetic target, really, an American <laughs> politician versus like a doe. But no, I'd, I'd want to get good enough with a rifle to kill with one shot. I probably could with a bow. But again, there, there's an element of and I also do casual archery for fun. But there's there's an element of uh, kind of getting enjoyment out of your hobbies. Like when my uh, Appalachian buddies describe like deer hunting to me, they're like, you know, you could get one of the mountain elk we got in Kentucky if you get out there about 540 in the morning during snow season and you get the blind close enough to, you know, the big boy that you're, it's just sort of like this sounds kind of miserable. But as I improve my skills, I might be more likely to do it. <laughs> Some people like harsh hobbies. Yeah, a lot of people do. A lot of a lot of my Caucasian buddies, most of my friends were athletes, and a lot of them were kind of on the wilder jock side. So that's I, I'm very down to usually, you know, grab a drink or go boating or fishing, mm. light hunting, something like that. But like with people ask stuff like, hey, we got these canoes, you want to go down the side of this mountain? I'm usually not all that inclined to say yes. You know, like the first white man ever to see the, you know, like it's not really something that appeals to me personally. Congratulations for reaching the end of the discussion. If you enjoyed it, do be sure to leave a review or a comment or a thumbs up or whatever you need to do to show that glorious algorithm that this is some good stuff. And do be sure to go and check that back catalog as it is brimming full of fantastic conversations. Links to provide monetary support are down there in the description as well. Have a good night.